0: A reading from the book of Revelation. Hear now the word of God. A great portent appeared in heaven a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pangs in the agony of giving birth. Then another portent appeared in heaven a great red dragon with seven heads. And ten horns and seven diadems on his head. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Then the dragon stood before the woman who was about to bear a child, so that he might devour her child as soon as it was born. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was snatched away and taken to God and to His throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God so that there she can be nourished for 1,260 days. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back, but they were defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven proclaiming, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah, For the accuser of our comrades has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. But they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they did not cling to life, even in the face of death. Rejoice then, you heavens and those who dwell in them, but woe to the earth and and the sea For the devil has come down to you with great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. As the people were filled with expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah. Let's try this again. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus answered him, it is written, one does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up, When the devil had finished every test, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is the gospel of the Lord.
2: Let's pray. Spirit of God, creator, sustainer, and renewer of all life, breathe in us now. And enliven us as we sit with your scriptures, which you inspired long ago and which you graciously illumine among your people in every age who seek your wisdom and ask for your help. And so we ask for that now. Help us to hear your voice and to know your presence, to desire your guidance, to delight in your will and to seek first your kingdom through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. So here's some conventional wisdom for you. Don't talk about religion or politics. We've heard that, right? That's what parents teach their children to help them navigate social settings with grace and ease, and that's what professional mentors will teach their mentees to help them avoid committing that career derailing faux pas at the water cooler. It's conventional wisdom that in our society at least, one of the safest moves you can make, socially and professionally, is to avoid talking about politics and religion altogether. Unfortunately, the Bible did not get that memo. Uh, Jesus definitely didn't get the memo. He talked about religion and politics all the time. Of course, that got him killed. The book of Revelation, uh, as as it plays out, what we see here is actually it takes Jesus's religious political talk and just turns that dial like all the way up to 11 until we get this ear-splitting, eye-popping, magical mystery tour of the kingdom of God coming on earth and clashing with all the religious and political institutions and forces that oppose God's reign over God's world. Like this is what the book is. It's this wild, vivid, imaginative tour of the kingdom of God clashing with the kingdoms of this world, and its message is thoroughly, unavoidably, and boldly religious and political. And if it weren't obvious already, as we've been making our way through the book of Revelation, it certainly becomes obvious in this text from chapter 12 that we just read. Because what we have in this text is a, dr- a dramatized political cartoon that in sort of this like ancient Saturday Night Live kind of way spoofs the political propaganda of the Roman Empire in a way that actually undermines the empire's and the emperor's authority and presents Jesus, not Caesar, as the king who brings peace on earth. It's actually really edgy stuff that we're reading here. And what John is doing is he takes these characters from the biblical story and he places them inside of the plot line of a well-known Greco-Roman myth. And it's not just any myth, but it was one that was a go-to favorite of the Roman imperial propaganda that portrayed the emperor as a son of the gods and the one who brought peace to the realm. And the story goes like this. Once upon a time, the Greek god Zeus had a mistress named Leto, who became pregnant with twins. But when Zeus's wife Hera found out about it, she banished Leto, who then had to flee to a faraway place. And this fierce enemy of the gods, a dragon named Python, pursued Leto in order to kill her offspring because Python had been warned by an oracle that one of her kids would destroy him. And so he pursues her, he's after her, but she uh, is carried away by the north wind to the island of Delos, and Poseidon, the sea god, protects her until she can give birth to these twins, one of whom is Apollo, another of whom is Artemis. And then, when Apollo is four days old, he comes with arrows and kills the dragon. That's the story. It's a very familiar tale among John's original audience, uh, primarily because the Roman emperors used this tale as their political ads. They would use it to present themselves in the likeness of Apollo as sons of the gods who ushered in the Roman age of peace. And so as it was told throughout the empire, citizens uh, would have, who heard the story, they, they would have identified the woman, the mother, with the goddess Roma, who was the queen of heaven and sort of this mother of the empire, and would, whose son would be the emperor of Rome, the savior of the people, and who would establish the golden age. And so what we have actually is evidence of Caesar Augustus and Nero and Domitian all presenting themselves in the likeness of Apollo as part of their political ads. And this story was like the most common commercial that would run in that day. I am Nero, and I endorse this message, right? But John spoofs the whole thing in this text. And he spoofs it by doing this sort of textbook move in political cartooning. It's the move of swapping out characters, right? Putting characters from one story into the plot line of another. I mean, think about how many times you've seen politicians portrayed as Pinocchio, right? At the debate podium with their nose growing longer and longer and longer, right? Or if you think about, I don't know if you caught this on Saturday Night Live, but Robert De Niro and Ben Stiller coming and playing Robert Mueller and Michael Cohen and situating this whole interrogation scene inside of the drama of this awkward comedy of Meet the Parents that Robert De Niro and Ben Stiller play in, right? It's a spoof of the whole thing by swapping out characters and plot lines. Well, that's exactly what John does here. As he retells this classic myth of Roman imperial propaganda, he transforms it into this cosmic retelling of the birth of Jesus. This is no, oh, little town of Bethlehem. This is like in a galaxy far, far away. Jesus is born, right? This child in the story isn't Apollo and isn't the emperor this time. It's actually the long-awaited Messiah figure that we meet in Psalm 2 that we read at the beginning of worship. This one who would rule the nations with an iron rod. And the radiant woman isn't a Greek or Roman goddess. She is the people of God. And the dragon isn't your typical python as you'd meet him in the Greco-Roman myth. It's this seven-headed, ten-horned composite creature that combines the beasts of the prophet Daniel's vision from chapter 7 of of that prophetic book. These beasts that symbolize the empires that oppose God protector of the woman isn't Poseidon but the god of Israel who took care of his people in the wilderness and through all of this retelling of the story through this spoofing what you get the takeaway what makes this punchline such a zinger is that the one who emerges as the victorious apollo figure it's not the emperor but it's the christ it's jesus And by implication, since the dragon represents all these forces that oppose the Christ, the emperor, who is the head of this empire persecuting the early church, is portrayed here not as the savior and the bringer of light and peace to the realm, but as one who's doing the bidding of the dragon. He's team dragon. It reverses the whole message of the propaganda. The emperor is made to be one who looks powerful and victorious, but isn't. And so we shouldn't misread Revelation as so otherworldly or future-oriented that it isn't directly concerned with political realities on the ground in our real world. The whole point of John's vision is to encourage and challenge the followers of Jesus to live differently in the world now. To live today in light of God's promised future that He secured through the victory of Jesus, this Lamb who was slain. And the point that comes through again and again and again here and elsewhere is just this God is bigger and mightier than the Empire. God wins, Jesus wins. And not only that, but the way that followers of Jesus become participants in God's victory over evil and over injustice and over chaos and darkness and death is not by playing some like Christianized version of that worldly game of empire building, but by surrendering our self-protecting and self-promoting instincts altogether in order to live like Jesus and with Jesus in a world that rejected Jesus, the Lamb who was slain. And as the next several scenes unfold in Revelation, what we see is that they build on this political cartoon in order to help John's readers, these Christians who are suffering persecution, in order to help them locate their own experience of struggle within the story of Jesus' victory. This victory that's already won, yet not visible on earth as it is in heaven. And as you'd expect from Revelation, we've been in it long enough to kind of know how the book works, John pulls out all the stops, right? He makes use of all the CGI and special effects that are available to him in his day to tell the story in a way that stokes the imagination inflames flames the heart. And the first scene that we get building on this political cartoon is this one that we just read in verses 7 through 12. It's this tale of a heavenly battle in which the archangel Michael and his angelic army defeat the dragon and cast him down to earth. And then the the next scene that we get in chapter 13 is of this dragon who's now furious because he's lost this battle over heavenly territory. We see him raising up from the underworld, Two powerful beasts that he wants to enlist in his attempt to conquer the earth. And so what we get is this next scene in this section of the book that is this epic battle that begins at the moment of Jesus' enthronement in heaven. This isn't supposed to be perceived as like some before the dawn of time conflict. This is something that, that John is portraying as happening as the direct aftermath of Jesus' victory in his death, resurrection, and ascension. This victory that begins to explode through the heavens and radiate across the face of the earth. And so this dragon whom John identifies as that ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the world. He's thrown down to earth with his crew, right? They no longer have any foothold in the heavens. The accuser can no longer make any accusation that the judge of heaven will actually hear. And it's this decisive blow to the enemy, a loss of critical ground that spells certain defeat. And there's no bouncing back from this one. But John is saying in this vision, don't be fooled. This isn't Armistice Day just yet. The enemy continues to rage. It's just that his violent tantrum has been quarantined within the confines of the earth. And his raging is ultimately all in vain. And as the story goes over the next few chapters of Revelation, the dragon takes his stance, it says, on the shore of the sea. And raises up these two beasts. One from the sea that symbolizes the political institutions that use coercive force to rule over people. And one from the land that symbolizes religious institutions that use deceptive force to lure the affections of the people toward the political establishment. That's what he's doing. That's what the beasts are. Last week I promised you spirit frogs, If you weren't here, that's probably the weirdest sentence you've ever heard in your life. Um, But here we go. John does describe the dragon and the two beasts as having foul spirits like frogs coming out of their mouths, which is this gross picture that is meant to symbolize their deceptive speech in contrast to the truth-telling speech of the lamb and his witnesses. And that's all I'll say about the spirit frogs. It's just one of the many images but I, I, couldn't, uh, I couldn't not speak to it. Martin Scorsese says, if in scene one you put a gun on the desk, you've got to make sure you shoot the thing before the end of the film. It's just poor form to do otherwise. The beast. There's so much you could say here. And the main, I, mean, I think one of the main things is just to say that these aren't figures that are meant to be like, this isn't like Bible code stuff. These aren't future entities that we're supposed to look out for as signals of end things that are about to happen. And it's, it's really, it's unbelievable how much time and energy has been spent and wasted um, trying to identify the beast, right? And trying to convince people that, like, it's really happening, the, the climactic clash. The whole endeavor just completely misses the point, especially because we already know who the beast is. It's gritty, The new mascot of the Philadelphia Flyers, right? That orange crazy-eyed nightmare that came out of nowhere like a month ago. Just kidding. It's not gritty. The beast is the Roman Empire. And it's the Roman religion that props up the empire. And it's also every other political and religious institution in history and in our present moment that resists the coming of God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And it's a beast that's just as capable of living in here as it is capable of living out there. It's a beast that exploits, right? It's every human institution that exploits people by way of coercion or deception, It's every human movement that frightens or deceives people away from entrusting their lives to Jesus and participating with him in what God is doing in the world. And two of the biggest culprits in our society that use their power in this way, to play on our hopes and our fears in this way, are religion and politics. And the fact that we aren't supposed to talk about them just proves the point. And when we don't talk about them, when we can't talk about them, when we can only fight about them, they become all the more powerful in all the wrong ways. The truth is that you and I, we, today, actually need something very similar to what John's original audience needed back in the day of this early persecution of the church, in this moment of Roman rule. We need our religion and our politics to be spoofed by Jesus so that we begin to see how ridiculous they are. That's what we need. We need our religion and our politics to be spoofed and transformed by Jesus if we're going to engage either of these things in a way that's even a little bit helpful to the world and to us. We need them spoofed by this Jesus who resisted temptation And became victorious, not by some power play, but by way of love that was infused with a power far greater than anything anyone could see. And we need to see the the futility and the ridiculousness of our beast mode. If we're going to turn from it and embrace the humbler, more gentle, more peaceful, more courageous mode of the lamb who was slain and the reason we need to see the futility of it and the ridiculousness of it rather than just the evil of it is because apparently seeing the evil of it isn't enough i mean if you just look at human history if you just look at our our moment and you see how willing we are to embrace dubious tactics when we become convinced that the ends justify the means or that like victory is all on our shoulders so we better do whatever it takes when we begin to believe that and live as though the victory were not won by the lamb who was slain, we end up acting as though the ends justify means other than the means of the lamb. And they don't. Which is not to say that we should disengage from either religion or politics, right? Of course not. It's just to say that we must engage them differently. We must engage them in and through the peace of Christ. The peace of Christ ruling in our hearts. The peace of Christ won by the Lamb who was slain. Because the truth is that it's in Him and only in Him, as John says here, that we become conquerors by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. When we begin to locate ourselves as John wants us to, within the story of Christ's victory, a funny thing happens. Both our despair and our delight in the religious and political establishment begin to take a back seat to the peace of Christ and our desire to see his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. His kingdom vision and his presence with us began to transform both our activism and our reactionary impulses, our moral outrage and our fears because we begin to recognize that it's not just like the sky is falling, let's freak out, what should we be doing? But it's, we begin to recognize the sky has been falling for 2,000 years since Jesus took his throne at the right hand of the Father and there's no empire yet that's been able to either fix it or derail his plan to override all of the calamity that has fallen upon the earth doesn't matter who you vote in or vote out of office. In the long run, Jesus' kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven, which is not to say it doesn't matter who we vote for. It's to say that we engage it out of the peace of Christ, seeking his kingdom, rather than out of the fear and anxiety that the sky is falling, or maybe it will. God wins. In Jesus, God has won. And the point of this vision is that God calls us to trust him and to join him in this work of seeking his kingdom on earth, not by the coercive or deceptive tactics of the world, but by the mode of the lamb, who through love and self-sacrifice became the bringer of peace to the realm. The way of Jesus it always looks like weakness. But it's infused with all the power of heaven. And it is attached to all the promise of God that his kingdom of justice and peace will actually last upon the earth. And so our calling today, tomorrow, and weeks to come is to live into that reality in this peaceful, loving, courageous, active way as participating with Jesus and his victory, trusting him and moving forward. What would it look like in these next weeks if you and I began to believe this in a way that maybe we never have before? What would it look like if we began to believe that Jesus wins in our actual interpersonal relationships where it's okay to not win the argument, right? It's okay to let Jesus be their savior too, to entrust other people as we entrust ourselves to Christ. Or what would it look like in our workplace or in our neighborhoods or even in our engagement in social media or the public conversation? What would it look like to live in those places as those in whom the peace of Christ was ruling in our hearts? That's our calling, Can we practice believing this stuff, not just with our brains, but with our words, with our desires, with our plans, with our money, with our relationships, with our votes? This is the calling of Jesus, the calling of the God who wins. Let's pray. Our God, we give you thanks that in Christ your kingdom has come and that that kingdom is unshakable, that you have made us heirs and participants with you in a world that is meant to be beautiful, that is meant to last. So would you forgive us for all the ways that we try to build our own kingdom apart from you? Would you spoof our ridiculous tendencies and show us in the light of Christ how you've called us to engage our world Engage one another in a way that is more life-giving, more whole, and more peaceable than all the ways that we're tempted to engage otherwise. God, would you work your peace in us and among us, we ask, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.